0: The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Glad to have you here for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Broadcasting live here from Santa Monica, the Internet Law Center. Um, please be seated. we got a great show for you today. And uh, we're going to start with a, a very distinguished scholar on privacy. Um, Lori Craner, who's an associate professor at the Carnegie Mellon Institute and um, as well as a founder of Wombat Securities but she's also um, the director of their SciLab and we're going to hear a little bit more about that Um, but in the second half hour we're going to be talking about since um, we're easing into Thanksgiving we're going to talk about a Cyber Thanksgiving and some of the websites that we're thankful for, and uh, we'll we'll hear what some of the people have provided me with some of their favorites, and we'll we'll talk about that, and maybe they'll be useful to you too. But do we have Laurie? Yes, Laurie, thank you for joining us. And um, Laurie, were, we were talking earlier; she's with Carnegie Mellon Institute in um, um, University in um, Pittsburgh, and uh, it's very. It was founded by um, Carnegie himself and uh, we, and um, then you have the melon. and now there's a major donation by Bill Gates for a new uh, facility for the... Which department was that?
3: Computer science.
2: And um, so um, you guys have some pretty heavy backing. Um, so you've gained a lot of attention recently for a report you did on why Johnny can't opt out. Why don't you tell us about that?
3: Okay. Um, so uh, we've been looking at... All of the privacy tools that have come out uh, recently that are supposed to help people uh, protect their privacy when they go online and in particular to opt out of or block the tracking associated with behavioral advertising. And we've heard a lot from the industry that uh, these tools um, are successful and that uh, they are a good solution. And perhaps we may not even need any regulation in this space because we have uh, successful tools available. And so we decided to conduct a research study to find out whether these tools actually work and whether they're useful to people. And so... um, We're we're actually working on a series of reports, but this first one is really focused on the usability of nine specific tools that are designed to limit online behavioral
2: advertising. And those nine tools, are those the browser tools plus the NAI tools?
3: Um, As well as some uh, browser plugins that can also uh, block the uh, behavioral advertising.
2: And just for listeners, when I said and I'm referring to the Network Advertising Initiative, which has a, an opt-out um, mechanism on its site, um, so you can opt out of behavioral t- ad- targeting. But although there's been some question about how effective that has been. Um, so in looking at those tools, what would you find?
3: Well, we found that they're all fairly difficult for people to use, and that people are, for the most part, not able to use them effectively. So we found people uh, would try to use them and um, couldn't figure out what the settings meant. There was lots of jargon. Um, also, people would install them and they'd say, I have this set up to block everything. And in fact, they had misconfigured it and it was blocking nothing. Um, so they weren't, the tools are not actually providing the kind of privacy protections that people uh, want.
2: Is there a continuum? Is there some, you know, um, browsers, for example, that are, are easier to, to utilize the tools than others? Or is it pretty much consistent in terms of it's a challenge either way?
3: Um, yeah, so I've gotten a lot of people asking me, well, you know, you tested nine tools, which is the best? Um, and,
2: <laughs> or least worse or whatever. Or which
3: is the least worse? And, you know, it's a tough call because they're all, they all have problems in different ways. And so um, it, it's hard to say, well, this one is the best. I mean, they all have strengths and weaknesses. Um, and in our uh, paper, we actually put a nice table showing the strengths and weaknesses of each one. Um, so I, I think that uh, the, 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 the tools that are built into the web browsers, um, you know, Firefox is far easier to use than Internet Explorer's privacy tools. But Internet Explorer's privacy tools, if you could figure out how to use them, do a lot more. Uh, so there are these trade offs.
2: Right. You indicate Firefox that um, participants didn't know what protection DNT provided. Um, and whereas in the Internet Explorer settings, um, you found that um, default settings provide some protection, but the configuration was confusing and it had jargon, and participants couldn't figure out how to block all third party cookies.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, in Firefox, it was pretty easy for people to figure out how to configure it, but they were skeptical about what that was actually doing. IE um, gives you a lot more, but nobody really understood what it was giving them or what how to configure it. Um, but if you do nothing with IE, you don't configure anything, by default, you actually have some privacy protection. <laughs>
2: Now, you had done a, another study just a few months earlier on ad choices, compliance with online behavioral advertising notice and choice requirements. And I, I, that's part of this, this series of studies you're referring to, right? Yeah. What, was um, your, what, what did that report find?
3: Yes, so uh, there we were looking at some of the industry self-regulatory guidelines um, that say that companies that are in the online behavioral advertising business or who have uh, websites where they post behavioral ads from third parties, uh, there are some guidelines that they're supposed to follow. Um, and uh, We decided to do kind of a census of um, some of these companies to see how well they were following the industry's own guidelines. Um, And what we found is that um, while there there certainly um, uh, has been an uptake in following the guidelines, um, especially in August, um, where the the industry had a self-imposed deadline and we did see sort of people scurrying to comply with it, um, there's still a lot of gaps and a lot of companies that do not seem to be fully complying. um, So, for example, the um, behavioral ads are all supposed to have a, uh, icon on them. There's this ad choices icon that looks right. like a little triangle, and there are a lot of them that don't seem to have it. Um, it seems to be kind of spotty. Um, there, there are many of them that have the icon, that it's not clear that they really are behavioral advertising. Uh, so, um, it's just just a lot of inconsistency uh, for even following these guidelines.
2: Now, last week, we had Paul Marinello from the um, National Advertising and Review Council and um, you know, one of the things is that they're mon- they're actually monitoring compliance with the behavioral targeting opt-out, and um, they recently cited several companies for failing to comply. And so, um, you know, hopefully that that you know, that will provide some greater incentive um, to comply. I, I think all the ones they cited um, agreed to agreed to uh, adhere to the recommendations. And of course, if they don't, it gets forwarded to the FTC. Now, have you been consulted with by, by by the FTC or Congress on your studies?
3: Uh, I have had some discussions with the FTC staff about some of our studies, um, as well as with congressional staffers.
2: And um, what, what, is, what is the reaction from the Hill to this?
3: Well, whenever I talk to people on the Hill, they seem actually very eager to get actual data um, on these topics. And uh, so I, I think um, – they, they've been very interested in our studies because they, they actually collect empirical data which uh, can inform policymaking.
2: Which I, I, you make a good point because a lot of the debate on, on privacy is kind of um, either theoretical in that, well, what, what we think a user might do or based on how we, th- we might act in those circumstances. And um, I th- you know, is your experience that there is kind of a, a lack of data in this area?
3: Yeah, there's definitely a lack of data in this area. Um, I, I think you know the the companies that are building tools are, or doing these programs um, have not released a whole lot of data um, from our usability studies. Given how bad things are, I wonder if um, they're even actually doing usability studies. Uh, <laughs> if they were, they probably have things that were more usable than what they have. Um, and and uh, some of this data is really difficult to collect uh, when we tried to do the census of, of uh, the advertising and how well they were um, following the guidelines. One of the things that we wanted to know is if it's a behavioral ad, it should have the icon. If it's not a behavioral ad, it doesn't need to. So how do we figure out which are the behavioral ads or what percentage of them are behavioral ads? And that is data that you know, nobody, either nobody has or nobody's telling.
2: Oh plus so what you do? Do you had to make that determination yourself?
3: Um, So we we tried various ways, and we we, uh, eventually um, decided we we couldn't make an absolute determination. Um, There were certain categories of ads that we decided to eliminate from consideration because we had good reason to believe they probably weren't behavioral, Um, and so we could exclude those. The rest of them, we don't really know, Um, so we looked for industry sources that would give us some idea of what percentage should be behavioral um and we did find um multiple industry sources that had an eighty percent number um as soon as we put that number in our paper uh the the industry was all over us telling us that that number was way off um but nobody has given us a better number so we don't really know
2: now um you, were ta- you mentioned the there's a lack of data and um you know so you was kind of surprised to the extent there's a lack of data but um are are there any policy or um any or any aspects of policy that are in place or policies being proposed now you think being driven by assumptions that aren't, aren't supported by the data you've seen
3: yeah i i think that a lot of the discussion right now about self-regulation um is uh is based on the notion that self-regulation could be an effective approach. And I think uh, if you're going to make that assumption, it would be good to really have data that says it is an effective approach. And most of the data that we've collected in these studies, as well as some others we haven't talked about yet, um, really questions whether self-regulation is an effective approach.
2: Well, I guess it's it, it's effective to know regulations and to, you know getting um one of the problems I see in, in privacy is that there's so many different interests it's such a broad topic that it, it deciding on and implementing regulation is going to be very difficult
4: Yeah. So,
2: so that that that's a very easy fallback to have until you can actually you know kind of you know climb the climb the hill and figure out what it is that you need to do to regulate the area yeah. Um, yeah, I worked in, in the uh, in the '80s. Actually, I worked um, when I was in law school. I worked with a banking lobbyist, and you know, in back back in the '80s, they were still talking with, uh, about Glass Steagall reform, which didn't happen until the mid '90s. And you know, I, I sometimes wonder whether we're going to see the same type of scenario on the privacy front, in that it's going to take. You know, already we've been talking about some of these issues now for four years at least, and it's going to take four to eight, or maybe you know. 10 years or more before this is, is really a consensus and, and, and a will to move forward
3: well I've been working in this space for 15 years and <laughs> the, the the FTC held their first online privacy workshop the best that I can tell in
2: 1995 wow it's interesting yeah just the way how this it, we've been talking about a lot of the same things and um, it, but it I think what happens is that the you know the, the privacy threat du jour just keeps changing and then it keeps it you know, gets more complicated. You know, we had our very first show actually we had on Chris um, Chris Olson, and he was talking about the roundtables that the FTC had, and I said I got the sense that you know the, what happened was is that you had a a new you know kind of a new Obama FTC. And initially, the the view was to kind of pick up where we left off in 2000, but then realized that the whole world had changed, and you weren't regulating a 2000 world. You know how these things called social media, um, data had been more commoditized than ever before. And he said, "You're right. I mean, we, we really were trying to get our arms around what what's going on in the you know the, in the universe, so to speak. And so that's 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 an ongoing challenge because you you know this is a moving train, a very fast moving train. Yeah. Now, one thing I thought was interesting that you did was um, you you, compete, you wondered whether did a study on whether privacy should be approached like a nutrition label, and, right? And, um, and so, explain that to me. How? Would, so, what would a, a privacy label look like? Because I actually think that could be the most consumer useful way to approach something if you had some kind of you know brief but standardized um, disclosure.
3: Yeah. Well, so uh, everybody knows that privacy policies are pretty much useless for the average consumer. Right? We have you know, these very long uh, texts that take a long time to read. We did a study on that as to just how long it would take people to read them and it's a really long time if people really read them all. Um, and uh, they're full of jargon that people don't understand and they change without notice. And so the, these privacy policies are for the most part really failing consumers. Um, and so we look to, well, what other types of um, notices do we have uh, for consumers? And nutrition labels come to mind. Um, and so with a nutrition label, this is something that is standardized. So I can take two boxes of cereal and put them side by side, and I can compare them and find out which one has more sugar and which one has um, uh, more calories and all of that. And it's they're comparable. Once I learn how to read it once then I can apply it to everything. I don't, I'm not going to encounter new terminology every time I read it. Um, And uh, it it also, uh, you know, everything's always in the same place. Um, So, you know, right now if I read a privacy policy and, you know, I want to know whether this company is going to, um, you know, selling my information um, to insurance companies, (laughs) <laughs> like that. Um, you know, I can read through the 10 page privacy policy, and if I don't see any mention of that, I can't necessarily conclude that it doesn't happen.
2: Well, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, anything, um, in terms of if people want more information on what you're working on, where, where would you send them to?
3: Uh, well, so they can go to the website um, for our laboratory, um, which is cups.cs.cmu.edu.
2: Great, and you're at Carnegie Mellon University, and they're called the Tartans. Why is that? (laughs)
3: <laughs> um yeah well we, we have this whole uh, scottish theme going on here oh
2: okay i was wondering where that came from
3: yeah yeah so our mascot you know is a uh is a piece of
2: plaid fabric
3: <laughs> 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 not very ferocious <laughs> no actually we be, adopted must... the scotty dog as well
2: <laughs> oh, okay yeah i was gonna say that it makes it hard for the mascot to get in fights at games but yeah <laughs> But I want to thank you for joining us, and, and please uh, let us know when you have your next study. I think this is a fast, you're doing great work in this area, and it's fascinating, and um, it would, we definitely want to keep following what you're up to. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. All right. We'll be back after these messages.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs.
0: Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best name. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at Mach speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmaster WebmasterRadio.fm.
0: The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: Let me introduce um, Douglas Gansler, who is the Attorney General of Maryland. Um, he was the only statewide elected officer who was re-elected in 2010 without an opponent, um, although we'll get into that in a bit, Um, and um, he's just recently elected as uh, president of the National Association of Attorneys General. Douglas, are you with us? I am. I want to thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you, and Just for the record, um, many, many years ago, um, Douglas and I worked together at a firm that is no more, Howard and Simon, and um, Douglas has done great things since then, including being um, district attorney for Montgomery County, Maryland, where he actually had one case of international import, and um, he's now in his second term as attorney general. You had quite a fight there. I was looking at the the count and – Basically, um, you got uh, 1.6 million, uh, the next closest guy, uh, right in got 300 votes. And then Mickey Mouse got 30 votes.
4: Really? And so, yeah. Mickey's strong, Mickey's strong. And I
2: was wondering if you've reached out to the entertainment community to, you know, deal with any hard feelings they might have from such a drubbing.
4: <laughs> no, you know, I'm okay with it, yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, Mickey, Mickey's appealing to a different group of people, and I'm sure that, if, you know, if we took a poll in Disneyland, he'd win.
2: Now um, if, for those who aren 't familiar with Maryland, uh, you know Maryland does you know, have you know, quite a, a role in technology, both in terms of defense, um, definitely with biotech with the national Institute of Health there but it 's also become somewhat of an emerging uh, internet center as well, um, for example um, advertising dot com is based there, and there are a number of other um, Tech companies growing in the Baltimore and the Bethesda corridors, and um, you've actually taken a, quite an interest in tech as Attorney General, particularly in social media.
4: Well, there's two things. Well in, in terms of Maryland and, and it being uniquely positioned, I would say in, in, in drilling down deeper, the place where we're best situated is for cybersecurity because. Yeah, the NSA is is in Maryland, um, Fort Meade, Aberdeen. There's a lot of, lot going on in the cybersecurity world, so we're seeing as more and more small tech companies, cybersecurity tech companies, people in that space coming to Maryland and setting up shop here, and then being, you know, obviously it's juxtaposition to the federal government um, is also helpful in DC. So you're seeing that. In terms of my own interest in the tech world, I mean, I have very little tech knowledge, but I do understand that you know, the, the tech world is, is, is literally uh, you know, booming around us. And when I became president of the National Association of Attorneys General, what happened was they, you know, we have to have a, a presidential initiative. So last year, the president of NAG, they call it, National Association of Attorneys General, uh, the president of NAG was Rob McKenna, who was the attorney general of Washington State. And, you know, we switch by parties, political parties each year. I'm a Democrat, he's a Republican. His issue is human trafficking, which is a huge issue, and very underexposed issue, a very important issue. Um, what I chose to talk about was uh, due to my presidential initiative, it was around privacy in the digital age and privacy in the Internet, that kind of thing. And what what that means is when we have conferences, we have different panels. And when the, the attorneys general of the United States get together, we have panels on, on different subjects involving Privacy in the Internet, privacy in the digital age, and then in mid-April we'll actually have a, a full conference here in Maryland at National Harbor, middle of April, um, on focused just on the issues of privacy in the digital age. So um, it's been fascinating. I, I became president in June, uh, and will be president until this June. And we have, I mean, I've learned an enormous amount, and I think it's been really good. To establish a further dialogue on this issue with attorneys general, the last point I'll make is: is attorneys general have been increasingly filling this space in terms of enforcement um, on the internet, in particular, because you know local d- district attorneys are, are very much concentrating on street crime, rape, murder, arson, that kind of thing. The federal government is increasingly focused on homeland security, terrorism, and, and and that kind of thing. And there's a real vacuum in the middle, and and sort of who's who's monitoring the internet. And uh, Attorney General are really filling that space.
2: Now, in in some cases, you know, there you mentioned, um, you know, Attorney General McKenna. You know, Washington is is a great example of of a state that actually decided to have a major presence, in and. Internet issues. Um, they actually created a cyber unit within their um, department. You know, getting special funding. I think when um, Governor Gregoire was attorney general, are you seeing that happen much among your colleagues, is, or you know, is it are people still kind of getting up to speed on how to address the internet from a law enforcement perspective?
4: Well, two things. One, I mean, we've done a lot collectively as attorneys general. I mean, you know, the internet is. Uh, obviously, not confined by any natural borders, and and so it, it it goes past state lines. In fact, much of what we see, and particularly the insidious conduct, is international in nature. So we've done a, a number of enforcement actions and and educational efforts collectively around the country. And so you know, I, MySpace comes to mind when we had we reached an agreement to give us uh, addresses of sexual predators that are on the internet. Uh, Craigslist, which is basically running an online brothel that we we dealt with, Backpage.com, which is which is a, a website used for human trafficking. Um, these are places where we work collectively together. Now, in terms of the offices themselves and and the, the way in which they're structured, California and Maryland have are are two of the offices that have set up privacy. Um, division, the privacy division within in the office to look at these issues around privacy in the, on the internet and so that's a little bit more specific to the privacy issues but in terms of internet enforcement um, you know almost every state now is pretty vigilant in going after uh, two things, child predators and child pornography and a lot of it's education by the way, I mean if you know if we were having this conversation five years ago the biggest concern on the internet at that time uh, particularly dealing with children would be uh, sexual predators coming after kids taking them from the virtual to the real world, and the dangers that that then follow in, in you know sexual in nature and, and actually killed and murders um, you don 't hear that still happens, but you don 't hear it by it at all in the in the same numbers and much of that is because parents are educating their kids that you know don 't give certain, certain types of information over on the internet to, to strangers and 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 so forth um but privacy is, is really a big issue now um, out there. So a couple, some of the offices like mine now in Maryland and California, so. Harris as well, have set up privacy units.
2: And what do you hear from constituents about privacy?
4: Well, there's a big concern with constituents. You know, why is it that when you go on a website and you buy a product, all of a sudden the next time you get on the internet, you're getting ads um, about similar products, and and you know, you go on uh, or why you do a, a, a map search to your next destination uh, where you're going to vacation, and all of a sudden you start to get bread and breakfast, bed and breakfast ads from that site and, and, and hotel places and tourism ads, and, and it's spooky for some people. And mm-hmm. so I think there's – so the, so we get complaints, and then the question is what do you do about it? And then what it really comes down to it seems to me is two things. One – is are, are, these company, are these internet providers, are these sites um, giving you explicit information regarding your privacy? That is, what are they doing with the information that they're collecting? And second, do you have an ability to opt out? Do you have an ability, well, in a perfect world, do you have an ability to opt in? But do you have an ability to opt out of them Selling your information, using it for different purposes. We all you're trying to do is buy buy something over the internet as a matter of convenience, and they're taking that information and using it to to have more precise laser laser precise advertising abilities. Well, but
2: in, in fairness, at the same time, providing um, you know websites with with information there that, that is free.
4: Well, that's um, totally that's exactly the point. And so that, what that's we're looking exchange. at. Right, and what we're looking at from Attorney General is not to, you know, sort of say anybody's doing anything wrong here, not go after any particular, uh, indict any companies and so forth. It's where do you draw that line between the completely legitimate business interests of Internet providers which um, and, and companies which are provide enormous service. You can, you can find out anything in a matter of, you know, nanoseconds. And, you know, the information's right there on the Internet, and it's, most, of it, most of it's free. And and their desire to do the targeted ads, and frankly, the consumer would, in in most cases, would rather if they're going to get ads than they are. Otherwise, there would be no internet. Um, there would be no funding for it. Wouldn't you rather have the argument would be made relevant ads to you, things that you're interested in, and not be inundated with ads that you have no interest in? So, where and where do you draw that line? And that line can be driven, uh, uh, can tr- be drawn, different places for different people between an individual's privacy. And a, business,
2: a legitimate business interest, and it it, I've the about two years ago, or actually maybe even longer, maybe about four years ago, the FTC started a process where they tried to get their arms around um, where we were in the state of privacy, and they have what they call a series of roundtables around the country, and actually Chris Olson, you remember, he was very very much involved in that, and um, and in doing so. They, they, they actually conceded that what we're discovering is that even where disclosures are made, they're not being read. And right. so,
4: on one hand, we want... And much of that is intentional. I'm sorry? And much of that is intentional. I mean, it's like, it, it, you know, some of it is, some of it isn't. In other words, it's like any kind of thing. When you buy a product, they'll give you a big book. And, and the, right. the one thing True. you want to know about that. is on page 12 in the fine print. Same right. thing with the Internet.
2: I mean the Apple Terms and Conditions are famous and actually um, there, are, there are some watchdogs and there's even a website out there called um, Terms of Service Did Not Read that is um, doing a great uh, job of um, – exploring and, you know, abusive terms of service. And uh, South Park actually did a great job on Apple's terms of service. But um, we're going to take a, a short break in a minute. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you just about, you know, so how do you strike the balance? I mean, what, what should be um, the role of the disclosure? And, and how much is it um, the consumer's responsibility to, um, you know, n- know what they're getting into? We were just talking earlier about um using um disclosures to educate consumers in privacy settings and one thing that's being debated right now in congress is the issue of do not track and have you um formulated a view on that at all
4: well i mean everybody i my view would be that's a great thing um the question is does it work how does it work and and um you know how the logistics of it would be interesting, but look, if something passes at the federal level, as dysfunctional as the federal government is, then it's something that we probably should have. I mean, most of the action, as you know, is in the states, right? And and so if if they can actually get a do not track button or do not track law passed on the federal side, that's you know that's great. And you know, frankly, most companies would prefer to have federal uh, legislation because then they don't have to deal with 50 different rules. Um, the problem is they they resist it, and then and
2: and so we don't really get there. Now, um, one of the issues on the Do Not Track is you have another form in addition to the states. Um, you have um, the browsers, and different browsers are are trying to come up with what their default setting should be on Do Not Track. And in an in Explorer Ten is actually thinking about or actually will default to a Do Not Track setting and. You know there are a number of advertisers who say that you know, they shouldn't have to honor that if the consumer isn't affirmatively opting out of being tracked. And so it's created a debate on you know, whose, whose onus should it be?
4: Yeah, and, and, and where uh, the dangers in the gray area in between. so there, the lot is very difficult to find. If there was something pop, that popped up right over the front said, so "Do you want to be tracked by people you don't know?" Uh, by some company you don't know or people you don't know, while you're on this website, say, put yes. I mean, you know, no one's, no, very few people are going to want to be tracked. So they're trying. It's it, they, it's the incentive of the company to be to get the information from people. Most people would prefer not to be tracked because that's not what they're signing up for. But the question is, do they? Uh, how easy it is to figure out how not to be tracked? And and you know, the the companies want to hide that information quite often. No
2: one area you've been very involved in is social media. And uh what has been that you've done a lot of education outreach. I've seen some of the videos you put together. What has been um you, your interaction and feedback from the, you know your, your constituents on social media and how do you think uh, parents are are dealing with social media than when you first came to office?
4: Well, I think there's more and more parents that understand it and and you know Facebook is certainly the the medium today, and you know, Twitter's starting to replace it a little bit, or, or certainly supplement it a little bit. And who knows what what the next one's going to be? But um, you know, parents are, are are starting to figure it out. More and more parents are, are going on Facebook. Grandparents even going on Facebook, so that they have an understanding of what it is and can be part of the educational process. We've you know we started a program where we teach teachers how to teach internet safety and including social networking websites. So we've been doing a lot of that. The other thing that we get involved in, though, is – and it's sort of a a big issue we're working on right now with Facebook is, is, you know, how COPA basically says you can't let kids under 13. There's 8 million people – there's 8 million some-odd people that are under 13 right now on Facebook. So the question is, do you say that Facebook and other social network websites, look, do a better job of of keeping these kids off? And they'll say they don't have the technology, and obviously they do, but there's always that back and forth there – or do you acknowledge that there's 8 million kids on there and many of whom have been put on by their parents because they, they understand that that's how kids communicate today, but have you know different privacy settings, have have privacy settings for, for companies that can't uh, deliver ads that are any different than Sunday morning cartoon standards, for example, mm-hmm. so we can protect from childhood obesity issues, violence issues, and that kind of thing. And, you know, and, it's a, it, and there's no right answer on that. You know, it, it, the Common Sense Media, which is uh, located in California out there, is, is, is wonderful. I mean, they're really sort of the, the police of, of, of what Facebook and some of these social network and websites are doing and trying to protect people. And the question is, you know, where, where, how best to protect the kids? Um, and, and do you acknowledge them on there and, and then protect them through privacy settings, or do you try and get them off, and is that realistic?
2: Now we we had uh, we had someone on our show about a couple of weeks ago to talk about the Amanda Todd suicide, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but that was the Canadian girl who published a video on YouTube about how she had been tormented online after being after being encouraged to do dis, dis, you know, display her breast on some website, and then was then being bullied um, for years over that, and ultimately she committed suicide, and uh, you. Know, uh, cyberbullying is just a difficult issue, and obviously there's, a lot of it is just about education, awareness, and you know, people being parents and, and people acting like grown-ups. But you know, some wonder to what extent should law enforcement step in.
4: Well, and and it's much worse than that. I mean, in other words, you hear the, the cases, and you think, well, my kid will never do something like that, because you hear the very few cases where people actually – Quite often, young girls commit suicide as a result of of, of cyberbullying. But we don't hear about about thousands of of kids that are are victims of cyberbullying that, you know, thankfully don't kill themselves, but are just living in this tor- with the and torment of of being cyberbullied. And and yeah, education's a piece of it, but kids are kids, and they're, they they they're sometimes very mean. And then you you shroud them in the anonymity of the internet; it becomes even worse. So. One of the things we're we're trying to work with on, on Facebook and others is to be able to have uh, principals of schools, you know, notify Facebook and say, "Look, there's cyberbullying going on here. You need to take that out, take that off of the off the social network website." Um, you know, there is no First Amendment protection on that, and so you know, that's the kind of thing that that we need to sort of education on one side, but also enforcement and 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 try and prevent it. You know, take the material off the Internet if, if possible.
2: Now, what about in terms of, you know, once you get out of the school? I mean, cyber harassment itself is a problem, you know, in, in, for adults. And, um, you know, I actually have handled a number of cases in that area. And, um, you know, I get calls all the time of people whose lives are just being ruined by, you know, someone who's just, you know, haranguing them. And, and often when they go to law enforcement, you know, they, they, they don't get a very favorable response, and well, and
4: law enforcement, a lot of it, they don't even understand the technology. They understand how that's, what that's part of it. I think, yeah, yeah. I think you know, I, all those cases are are always the the first line of defense is always going to be I have a First Amendment right to do whatever I want. Right. And but the fact of the matter is they don't. And and, and in some cases they do. In some cases it, it's it's stalking and it's harassment and it's threats and and there, and and the way you know, interestingly, the way we're often able to get at those cases. Um, you know, the hire private lawyers like yours, they'll come to us, and the attorney General's office and say, "Look, I got this problem. Can you fix it?" It's through the contractual terms. Um, we had a thing called peoplesdirt.com. You might have heard of Juicy Campus, was the college version of it. People's Dirt was a high school uh, site, and they were basically it was, it was built as an educational web bulletin board, appropriate for five year old and up. But it was had nothing. It was nothing of the sort. It was actually a smut website where you could type in, you know, Maryland, you type in Montgomery County, some school name, and then you have lists of, of all these horrible things about each kid, basically blogs on each kid that were, were mostly 99% untrue, but really hurt hurtful, harmful, uh, bad things. And, you know, we first told the advertisers that, you know, are on there, are you aware that you're on there, of course they weren't, and these are were legitimate companies, they pulled their ads to try and drive up some of the funding, it didn't work immediately, so we ended up being able to get that site taken down by going to GoDaddy uh, com and saying, "Look, do you have you looked at the contractual arrangement you have with this, with with People's Dirt and 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 then look at the website and see if that comports and it didn't. So they were able to do a contract. We were able to go after to get that off the website by looking at the contract and see so you really have to in some ways to get creative because of of these purported First Amendment protections that may or may not exist.
2: Now, um, in Maryland at one point was considering, I believe, having a technology court as a way to you know, encourage the growth of their, its own tech industry. Has, has did, did that ever advance far at all?
4: No, I mean, you know, it, it's there was definitely there's a lot of dialogue about it. I don't, it, it never really came to fruition. Um, you know, there's a lot of resistance to specialty courts. You know, we have domestic violence courts, we have drug courts. Beyond that, there's often resistance because you know it's a resource issue and, and so forth. So not, and what the thought was, I think you know back when that discussion was going on, is was there are there enough tech cases to justify it? And the answer at that point was no. Now that, that they probably there's probably many more now than there were then, and maybe maybe it's time to revisit that. But at that time, and the reason why you'd have that particular specialty court is because you could get judges and prosecutors, or you know, judges, I guess more more than prosecutors that uh, understand the issues involving you know some of the litigation and, and the patent laws and the intellectual property right. laws. Um, that would be sort of the reason to have it. The reason not to have it is it's no different than the other litigation between two parties.
2: I bring it up actually because I was a general counsel of a company that in uh, that was in Orange County, California. And you know Orange County at the time wasn't known as a tech center and their judges weren't really known for their tech, tech expertise. And um, we got put out of business by a $17 million trade secret verdict that's when the, the trade secret, um, was based on Microsoft products. And to this day, I can't identify what it was that was trade secret, but, you know, some 200 people lost their jobs because of a, a judge who just wasn't familiar with tech and frankly was reading magazines during the trial. And so th- there is value to that. Cause that's, but that's part of your tech, your, your infrastructure for business. Um, right. One area I've actually heard about using separate courts or at least having some kind of intervention system is for veterans, um, especially those returning from the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, um, you know, because, you know, they often need, need, just need some help and as a way to try to address, um, you know, their, how they got into the system. Yeah. But, uh-huh. um, be, yeah, I- that, that's that's just a side point but um, we've only got a few minutes left and uh, um, I know that um, we've covered a lot of stuff on privacy but I know that your your constituents are probably buzzing about one very vital and important issue that um, given that Tom McMillan was on the show I I feel duty bound to ask uh, (laughs) Uh, the ACC? Yes why is Maryland leaving the
4: ACC to go to the Big Ten? They're following the money it's you know the the other piece of that is why does the Big Ten want Maryland I mean you know Maryland's the, the the greatest school in the country other than Yale but it's uh you know it, I just think about you know the Maryland lacrosse team going out and playing the Nebraska lacrosse team just seems kind of awkward um and you know the original idea of conferences was you know much ge- more geographically based and certainly schools that are like similarly situated it's um you know Maryland helped start the ACC 60 years ago. There's a lot of nostalgia around it. A lot of people have said about it. The rivalries will certainly be broken up. Um, but the bottom line is there's a whole lot of money was thrown out of, at, thrown at Maryland. And I guess, you know, we, you look at Maryland and Rutgers both joining, you, know, you look at the D.C. market, you look at the New York market, I guess that's what's in it for Big Ten. It's just keep, every answer is it's all about the money. Maryland's been struggling um, financially, the athletic department has, over the last few years, and this is a quick fix to that.
2: Well, uh, thank you for addressing that issue head-on. But th-
4: and No, it's you- the most important issue out there, you know. <laughs> Fear the turtle.
2: <laughs> well, I want to I want to thank you for um, coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. And, Thanks. Uh, Anytime. And, and very good luck to you uh, in the, the, the period ahead, and look forward to following your progress this year as president, as the NAG. Thanks. I'll Thanks talk to a- you soon. All
4: right, have care. a
2: great Thanksgiving. You too. Bye. Um, That was Douglas Gansler, the Attorney General for the state of Maryland. This is Bennett Kelly from Silicon Beach at the Internet Law Center.